0: Hi there, and welcome to the Adapting to Change podcast, creative, curious and challenging conversations with me, Tim Rogers. Today, I'll be talking to Terry Stevens, Terry is an award-winning film editor. We met recently during a course at which I attended where he was presenting on video and audio blogging and podcasts. After the end of the course, we had a conversation about the art of storytelling and how this could be applied in corporate communication. This is a really interesting conversation and certainly worth capturing. I should however apologise because it was an entirely impromptu conversation which we had simply using an iPhone sat on a table on which we were sitting. It's not exactly the best recording. There is a little bit of background noise there, but what Terry has to say is worth it. So despite the suboptimal audio quality, I really do recommend you listening to Terry Stevens. I'm really interested in everything you said today about podcasting and videocasting and the art of storytelling. Yeah. Okay. And one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in it it is a long time ago, in the turn of the Millennium, I went to the Millennium Dome, they had a great little film in there, which obviously everybody who visited the Millennium Dome saw it. So literally millions of people saw this thing, and in, I think it was about four minutes... That video made every single person laugh, cry, feel happy, feel sad, and it suddenly occurred to me that a director, a storyteller, can absolutely influence your thinking and your feeling with precision, and yet in business, we talk about change management, and we have difficulty engaging our customers, our clients, our people, we don't have that level of emotional engagement and communication, what is it about what you do that we should learn as change managers? Um, so White says
1: I'm not, I'm not massively familiar with, um, with change management. In terms of what I think hard and fast business can learn from the entertainment industry or storytelling is storytelling is the best way that you can engage anyone um it's hardwired into our dna literally um survival of the fittest people understood and they made sense of the world over millennia they made sense over millennia by um by communicating by saying sun goes up ground gets hot sun goes down and and, and so as a species it's hardwired into our dna we don't make sense of the world as it being sort of like a series of just completely abstract happenings, we look for causality mm-hmm. all the time. We look for we look for a reason behind things. Now we, we, we ascribe narratives to things all the time. When you're, I think you said earlier on about you were a high level athlete, or in sports was part of your back. In terms of some um, sports, the way people talk about soccer, or the way people talk about rugby, people start ascribing narratives to them. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, well, the referee did this, or "Or well, the thing about this player is he's coming back from an injury. Do, 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 do. We look to, even in sports, we look to ascribe a story mm-hmm. for a reason for things happening. When, well, does that actually exist? It's just a way for mm-hmm. us to understand things. Now that's going off on a bit of an abstraction, but we're, as a species, people, humans are always looking for a reason that things happen, why things work. And I think in business, the communication quite often is just hard and fast facts, Um, 90% effectiveness, Mm. blah, 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 da, 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 da. And people, a lot of people aren't hardwired to understand that. You need to tell a narrative. You need to unfold things personalize things, use a cipher, say, well, this person is being impacted because it's almost when you look at um when you look at charity mm. adverts on the TV, um it's gonna sound really quite mawkish, but they say, Oh Joey hasn't eaten in three days because they don't talk about um the GDP of mm. developing countries or or the the, the the impact of this this drought has Blah, 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 and they don't talk in hard and fast facts, they personalise personalising. So I think, look, at, if you can ascribe the narrative, if you can personalise things, I think that's something that potentially business can learn from storytellers, is to, at the end of the day, you're looking to influence people, make them laugh, make them cry, to your point. It can be used for surreptitious reasons. I mean, if you look at um, uh, gerrymandering or propaganda, the way that you can unfold, so it can be very, very, very powerful, um, so rather than just recitation of facts, if you can actually unfold something that can
0: maybe be more powerful. I'm really interested in, is it a phenomenon? It's got a word, but I can't even remember what it is. This phenomenon where I think everybody else thinks this, so I'll go along with it, although mm-hmm. I don't necessarily agree. And of course, when everybody in the room says, I'll go along with this because yeah. they all do, there's this assumption and we all stumble into something we don't agree with. And one of the things that I found in one-to-one conversations with people is actually the life that they're living and the narrative that guides them isn't actually the same as the narrative in their working environment. So you could be talking to a CEO who has one set of values and they're working in an organization that doesn't necessarily have a completely different set of values but it's interesting to compare that internal story and how you fit your role we look at Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and we are actors. And so how we have our own personal narratives and story and how that fits with other people's narratives and story of either within an organization or within a community or within a nation. And I'm really interested in those dialogues that draw that contrast between what's actually happening within you, what's happening within your context and what's happening in the world because they don't align um how do you do that in your work as a sort of documentary filmmaker who's possibly trying to see one situation from many different angles um what i'd say that to that is um
1: it gets it gets quite fawny and gets into like a lot of a lot of there are a lot of issues involved there in terms of like objectivity Mm -hmm. like a good documentary you want it to be objective. Mm-hmm. You want, but there's always going to be biases mm-hmm. involved, and so even down to what I said earlier on about sort of like the angle and the placement of the camera, the way you show someone off to, to to their best. But I think I think what you're what you're looking to do, I think what a good documentary should attempt to do is to communicate somebody's life mm-hmm. experience to someone. It might sound completely obvious, but one of the best films I've ever seen, and it was my privilege to work on the distribution of, was um, a film called Restrepo, which came out in, I think, 2010. Mm -hmm. And it was made by two filmmakers, Sebastian Mm Junger, who's a writer, who's written a lot of very, very interesting um, books about community and masculinity, and Tim Heverington, who was a photojournalist, who very sadly um, was killed in, I think, Libya, a few years um, later. And what they did, I think they were working for Vanity Fair and they were, write, they were working on a story and they were embedded with US Marines in the Korengore Valley in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And the Korengore Valley at the time was the most dangerous place on earth. They mm-hmm. drop, the, the US were dropping untold amount of munitions within this valley. It was absolutely hellish. And the guys went there to, to, to write a story and to take some pictures and they were, they were seeing people's lives. I mean, it's, it's sort of like their, the, the soldiers over there were were leading extraordinarily different lives to me and you but at the same time they were waking up every day they were eating, they were mm-hmm. doing whatever and they, they, they were carrying out the, 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 the mundanities of, of everyday life they were putting up with but they were doing it in a very, very different milieu and what um, the directors did was I think they couldn't believe what they were seeing and they understood that the story they wanted to communicate would not... Be full if it wasn't filmed. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't, I think they probably thought they couldn't communicate the story just in words and pictures. They need moving images, something immediate. And I think that's what a good documentary should do. It should understand what i mentioned earlier on the medium specificity mm-hmm. of the film, the ability to have a combination of images and sounds to be very immediate and very very emotive and they understood that and they understood that their story was best served by moving image rather than still images and and the written word and I think that's what a documentary can do and I think one of the strengths of that movie was that um, it was pretty apolitical even though it was a US financed movie about war being prosecuted by US servicemen it was it was pretty objective Mm -hmm. i have to say and it it allowed different people different different perspectives and different points of view and i think i think that's what a good documentary should do it should should strive to look for some kind of new to show a new lens on Mm -hmm. something to show you people's lives and to try to do it in an objective way if that makes sense
0: There's a quote used by somebody, and I wish I knew because I could then properly attribute it, but it says, You know, the best thing about radio is the pictures. Yeah. And you make the point about in that scenario of filmmaking where you could only really convey the story through Mm -hmm. pictures. But if the if radio has the best pictures, I mean, where do you stand in the sort of video audio so, challenge? I'm so I'm am I'm a huge lover of radio. I, I
1: love I love radio. Um, even though I've, video is what I spent a lot of my career working with, I really I really 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 love audio, um, it, because it can be so emotive. And there's um, it's, it's the idea like a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm. Or again, it's down to the, the medium specificity. It would take me if I, if I were to try to describe, and it's something you can play on with like chat GPT or something, describe the Mona Lisa. You could literally use a thousand words, and if someone's going to try to read those words, you can only make sense of text one word at a time. Mm. You can't let it all wash over you. The way you decode the written Mm. word is reading the sentence. Some people are quicker readers than others, but it will take you quite long. Whereas if you just look at the Mona Lisa or a work of visual art, there's so much to rest in you at one mm-hmm. time. Um, there's a writer, he's not, he's not my favourite writer at all, but he conjures some really interesting ideas. H.B. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. um, uh, a, a horror writer from the early 20th century, and he would tell these, um, one of the most influential horror writers of all time, even though I'm not a big horror fan, he would describe what I think was cosmic horror. He's, it wasn't just about Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and things. It was like it was the fear of the unknown and the world being this very isolated small place uh, in, in in the universe. And these were very uh, unfathomable fears, very primeval fears. And even though he's a very influential writer, none of his works have really translated into films mm-hmm. or, or anything visual because he was talking or a lot of his writing was about stuff which which can't be captured as soon as you and that's one of the brilliant things about radio is that it allows you to sort of conjure up your own your own images of things as soon as someone actually says well this is actually what it looks like well that's not what it would look like and it, mm-hmm. i don't think any image can necessarily match our imagination so podcasting like Netflix and like a lot of things that have been disruptors to traditional media is because they're on demand. Mm-hmm. The the listener can choose when they want to listen rather than having to be at the radio at seven o'clock to yeah. hear their show. They can pick it up whenever they want. With that said, I think some of the um, peak listening time for podcasts, I think are around 8 a.m., mm-hmm. because, and I think, again, it's when people are leaving the house, when people are commuting, a lot of people are listening then. And there has been an explosion in the last six, seven years of news organizations. So even even the JEP, their challenger brand, um, the Bayley Express does a daily one minute digest um, for Jersey News every morning. Um, The Telegraph, The Times, I think The Guardian, the BBC, they all have these sort of like bite Mm sized one minute, two minute long Podcasts, which are released early in the morning, which I think people a lot of people listening to so It's one of these ones Well, you can pick it up and listen to a podcast whenever you want, but a lot of people are Listening early in the morning. It's when traditional radio and um, the, the the most privileged and the, the highest paying gigs in radio mm-hmm. The breakfast shows mm-hmm. and that's when everyone's listening when they're waking up around seven thirty to 8 That's when peak listening is because people aren't more people listening to the radio and watching TV in the morning mm-hmm. because sit to so taking the TV, you need to sit down and watch it. Whereas the radio, I mean, I wake up, I have the Today program on Radio Four. I have Alexa's in every single room, and as I'm going to a different rooms, Alexa, play Radio Four. <laughs> so I'm doing all of these different bits and pieces. And then as soon as I leave the house, I put an audio book or listen to a podcast. And so it's 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 the way that you consume media. Um, you have to sit down to take the most out of the video, whereas audio, you can be doing a lot of different stuff.
0: This is an impossibly broad question, <laughs> but. I'm going to throw it anyway. Yeah. Um, why are people listening? Are people listening to be entertained, to be ent- informed? What does the statistics tell us? All, of the above. What I, all of the above. That. Um,
1: so what What's interesting with podcasting is even though you've got this huge, and it goes back to something I was kind of saying with the videos earlier. on, There's millions, billions of videos are being watched every day, but. It's not it's not like when we were growing up and you had um, four channels on TV mm-hmm. or even before the 80s, you had three channels and before that you, had two, or what have, you or what have you. There's still a huge audience, but people aren't just you don't get 20 million people mm-hmm. watching EastEnders anymore. They mm-hmm. get 6 million people because people are doing other things. Mm-hmm. Kids are playing video games and um, adults are playing video games. People are watching Netflix, Apple mm-hmm. TV. People are doing loads and loads and loads of different stuff. Um, and with podcasts, there are some podcasts which are always in the top 10 every single week, but people are listening to loads of it and stuff. In the lecture that I give on podcasting, I look at some really weird and wonderful things. There's, um, there's, a, there's a wrestling podcast called mm-hmm. an OSW Review Old School Wrestling. Three Irish fellas get together and they review Hulk Hogan wrestling matches in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of content. It's never going to be on BBC Radio One, Radio Four. It's never going to be on mainstream media. They have become, across pay, Patreon before. Oh Patreon. yes, yeah. So they've got it. They've got a Patreon page up. They probably—I don't know—they maybe only get like ten thousand listeners for each of their um, podcasts, but they've got ten thousand people on Patreon paying them five quid a month. Those guys, are, those guys are raking in like tens of thousands of dollars a month for their mm-hmm. wrestling podcast. So if you can mm-hmm. motivate. Mm -hmm. an audience. Maybe they want to be entertained, maybe they want to be informed, maybe they want to be scared. Mm -hmm. If you can motivate an audience, no matter what it is that they want, a a small motivated audience is better than
0: a really large, apathetic Mm -hmm. audience. Um, Clearly this is your profession, this is your business. What motivates you? What has made you engage with this industry, with this topic? So
1: I've, uh, It's one of those, like, I've always, I've always been interested in stories, like, since I was a kid, like, I've always, I've just always been interested in listening to stories, watching stories, be it I'm a voracious reader, I listen to the radio all the time, um, I watch lots of films, it's, it's, it's genuinely just one of those things, it's always what I've been interested in, and I've never wanted to do anything else, so it's kind of like, with a, a half-hearted answer, yeah. it's actually, it's one of those things, I enjoy it, so, so I do it.
0: Thank you for listening to Adapting to Change podcast, creative, curious and challenging conversations. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a new series, but we have some great speakers already lined up. In fact, I cannot believe that in just the 10 days since we announced the launch of this great program, we have more than 17 speakers lined up. We have Matt Faller, Pam O'Bear. Andy Jarvis, Coach Taimel, Glenda Riva-Allen, Glyn Mitchell, Jonathan Stewart, Catherine van Udenhausen, Marcus Cavalli, Michael Kirkwood, Paul Daryl groden Robert Roland-Smith, Simon Nash, Simon Saw, Stuart Hulson, Tina Hess, Sally minty and many more. So I am incredibly indebted to them, and the others who I've not mentioned, Uh, who have expressed an interest in coming in on the show and we haven't yet fixed dates with. So that's a great series to look forward to. So please follow me, Tim H.J. Rogers, on LinkedIn. I'll be announcing what podcasts are happening when. You can follow the series through LinkedIn alongside any materials that become available with the series. And of course, you can subscribe to the Adapting to Change podcast creative, curious, and challenging conversations. Thank you.